This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Teenagers in the U.S. are experiencing a mental health crisis. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people 10 to 24 years old, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And suicide rates increased more than 52% for those ages between 2000 and 2021. So what's happening? And why are so many kids and young adults struggling with their mental health? Here to discuss is Dr. Sonia Denizulu, clinical psychologist within child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Chicago Medicine Comer Children's Hospital. We're also joined by Dr. Tali Raviv, clinical psychologist and associate director for the Center for Childhood Resilience at Lurie Children's Hospital. That statistic that I just mentioned, Dr. Denizulu, it's so alarming to me. I mean, suicide rates for young people went up more than 52% between 2000 and 2021. Can you walk us through what this age group's been dealing with and what factors have contributed to the spike? Yeah. Well, my favorite answer in psychology, it all depends, right? That's the best answer we can give. And there's just so many factors that have affected this increasing spike. One of the things that has been a buzz in the media and among psychologists and um, other people who study this is social media. What does social media play a role? How does social media play a role um, and increase time on smartphones? Mm -hmm. How much of that has played a role in looking at um, some of the increased um, symptoms of anxiety and depression, loneliness and isolation in our teen population? So that's one aspect. But also the adolescent brain is also changing as well. And we're in the age of information where things are inundated and kids are getting a lot of information all at once. And it's an instant gratification of having to know this information right then and there at that moment. And coinciding that with the adolescent brain where the impulsivity, um, their decision-making is still, and their emotional centers are starting to become a little bit more alert and alarmed. Yeah. Um, but they're not as mature, right? And so you're taking in all these other factors, this flood of information that's coming in all at once, this desire need to take a look at, like, what's happening in this present moment? Did I get a like on social media? I'm mm-hmm. staying up until 2 a.m. How many people liked what I posted? So true. Right? Yeah. Um, Looking at how do we organize socially over social media, meaning getting together over groups, also plays a role where people are staying up, where they're trying to figure out FOMO, fear of missing out, right? So um, also spending a lot of time, you know, more so on screens or other devices where they're taking, they're taking um, time away from doing in-person activities, where our mm-hmm. brains are structured to do more of in-person. Our brains are not wired to deal with technology um, separated from people. Yeah. Right. So we get a lot of our social cues, a lot of our um, 
reciprocity in terms of maturing in those ways in our brains from social interactions. It starts at birth, right? Yeah. And so some of those things have been compromised. But just getting back to the social media piece, um, again, I don't think that's the only thing that explains, but we know that in 2012, from what I've read, that, that most Americans had a cell phone by that point. I think about 80%. And by that point, I think, I don't know if it was 50% teens, but it was a, a huge number of teens that had a cell phone. I think by 2018, I think 80% or 90% of teens had cell phones. And 95% of them are on social media. Absolutely. Yeah. So from 2012 to 2021, current day, that explosion happened in such a short period of time. Right. What else could help explain it, right? So that is a big push, a big push to help us look a little bit more closer into how this has played a role. Yeah, I appreciate that that overview of, of sort of what the picture looks like now. Uh, we'll dig more into the social media conversation later this hour on the program. But can you take us back some decades, Dr. Raviva? What health issues were at the forefront, you think, for teens from the earlier generations? Because it wasn't social media. I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, I think that we need to have the perspective over time that every generation is going to have its own struggles, right? Whether it's a new technology, whether it's uh, the Vietnam War, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I remember the biggest issue when I was a a teen, it was like teen pregnancy. Right. Right. Like that was the big thing you tried to stay away from. And, you know. And uh, I think drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find um, interesting is that actually some of those concerns about uh, teen drunk driving, teen pregnancy rates, teen use of substances more generally have decreased over time, and yet we see this huge spike in, so the risk behaviors in some ways are decreasing, but Mm -hmm. the mental health concerns and the uh, self-injurious behaviors, suicidal ideation, self-injury, those are increasing. And I do think that that is, in in a very large extent, related to changes in social interaction patterns that are not, they're not only related to social media. Um, Think about how many people knew their neighbors, how safe it was to walk around in neighborhoods, right? Yes. The interactions that you had at the grocery store, the interactions that you had, you know, on your front lawn, on Mm -hmm. your front porch, those have all changed radically. I think about a time when your kids would be out playing with friends. Of course, they had no cell phones back then, or, you know, maybe some had pagers when those came about, I think in what, the early 90s or so, but they'd be out playing for hours on end and you would just know they're fine. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, there is kind of a tendency to maybe romanticize the, what existed before, right? right? The type of communities that didn't exist in every community and that didn't exist for every child. But I do think there has been a qualitative shift. When when the pandemic happened, the early research that came out was really kind of more position papers saying, we know what is protective for kids in mm-hmm. terms of positive, healthy development. And that's First and foremost, connectedness to school and connectedness to adults, you know, having hobbies and interests. Mm -hmm. And think about it's not just the pandemic. Certainly the pandemic led to we knew, right, psychologists and sociologists could predict that COVID would be bad for mental health because kids are not going to school. Kids are not going to after school programs. They're not playing sports. They're not doing the things that are healthy for development, yeah. right? And so, but that is not just a COVID. I think that that is a legacy of COVID that some of that social isolation, people stay in their house, less socializing, but that was happening even before that. Yeah. No, and I think that that's, that's what's most alarming here uh, today. So 
what you just described, Dr. Denizulu, would you call this, is it fair to call this a crisis? Absolutely. Have you been seeing more teens lately because of mental health-related issues? Yes, I have. Um, A lot of teens are reporting higher rates of suicidal ideation. Um, There's some teens that we have worked with, a number of teens at Comer. I'm sure at Lurie I've sent some patients to Lurie for inpatient psych since Comer doesn't have one for teens. But, um, you know, for suicidal ideation, for attempted, some teens have completed um, that came into our ED and we tried to revive but couldn't. But, yeah, there's increased um, heightened anxiety and depression, a lot more reports of that happening. Um, How do you help them when they're experiencing those challenges? Yeah, so we kind of, we look at all the factors whenever we work with children and teens, you know, they don't exist in isolation. So we look at all the factors as it relates to peer relationships, family relationships, you know, what's happening at school, what's happening within their community. And then we look at the individual aspects and the reporting, you know, um, it could be a variety of reasons for our teens. But one of the things that I do see is, you know, uh, sleep is an issue. For our teens. They're uh, sleep deprived? Sleep deprived. That's one of the first thing I ask about. How is your sleep? And they're like, what do you mean? How's my sleep? Um, we're, in, we're in high school. If they're, in, you know, high achieving, performing high schools, it's expected not to sleep. Um, when really? They're very ass- because they have so much work to do in theory. Um, but, you know, in reality, our teenagers need more sleep because they're still developing. They're still growing. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, I ask about sleep and oftentimes that sleep has been compromised because of you know, their phones. I hate to, I don't want this to go back to the phones exclusively because it's not, but a lot of the teens that I've worked with um, and continue to work with um, still use screen time or phones as a way to help cope with the things that they're dealing with. Yeah. Right. Instead of talking to someone about it as as they used to, now it's like, I'm going to scroll through or post something and see how people are going to respond to me. Right? How is your approach, Dr. Raviv, when you're working with young people different than one you would take with adults? So I think that um, when you're working with young people, first of all, you have to really build that relationship. You have to build the trust because uh, there is a power differential, right? Mm-hmm. They're talking to an adult. They don't know what the consequences are going to be. They may have things that they want to talk to you about that they don't want their parents knowing about. And you have to navigate that balance and that that tricky line um, so that they can be honest and forthright and talk about the things they need to talk about without worrying about what the potential consequences might be. Mm-hmm. And I think when we look at one of the very big um, barriers for young people to getting mental health, it can be the stigma that their family members hold against mental health. So the stigma against mental health is is really, I think that's one of the areas we've made really great strides in the past, um, you know, decade. Um, but among the older generation, mm-hmm. that stigma very much still exists. And, and it's also cultural in some communities more than others. And uh, particularly for our LGBTQ plus young people mm-hmm. where they may not have acceptance. And that is, we know that that is a population that is a, at amongst the highest risk for suicidality and mental health concerns, bullying, other things. Yeah. And so I think the very first thing you need to do is you need to be really clear with them about this is what is confidential. This is what I can mm-hmm. keep between us. And these are the things that I have to share with someone and an adult in your family. I'm glad you said that because, I, you know, and, and thinking of my own experience, there are many young people out there who are actually still learning about this whole concept of therapy. Honestly, it was just recent years where mine sort of got a sense of what it was. They thought it was just something that grown-ups did, 
if they messed up their lives at some point. How do you advise parents to respond when their kid might need professional help, but they're rejecting it? Yeah, that is something um, we I deal with a lot every week when I have uh, an assessment clinic that we work with. You have parents sort of dragging the kid in behind Uh, them? Sometimes the kids are dragging the parents in. Um, so it can go both ways. Okay. Um, so, so it is very cultural. You know, my population I predominantly work with are black and brown families. Okay. And so there is a historical legacy of distrust in the medical care system. There is a historical legacy of a stigma. Um, and so, you know, we, we know this coming in and in, in places that serve young, young people in need of mental health. Those are the strategies you really have to think about how to um, address. So with our families, it's just more so not using technical terms like diagnoses or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Just like you all have concerns. What are the commonalities in understanding the reason why we're here today? And just kind of going with that is really, really helpful. Mm. And anytime that we hear anything about stigma, well, I don't trust this doctor. I don't trust that doctor. Okay, we can work through and problem solve around those issues. But I think it's just really coming in with an openness and understanding and humility, cultural humility about um, some of the families. uh, You know, society plays a role in building up stigma and distrust. So how do we help break down those barriers? Did you have thoughts, Dr. Raviv? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we work on a lot as well, because I I absolutely agree with, um, with Sonia here, that stigma, it doesn't just come from nowhere, right? There are real reasons that people may have, may hold those stigmatized beliefs, both about mental health and mental illness and about the people who are there to help them, right? Um, the medical profession uh, has not always been, uh, you know, blameless in that issue and that far from it. So one of the things that I would say is at the Center for Childhood Resilience, one of our big um, areas of focus is bringing mental health services into the communities, as we say, where kids live, learn, and play. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of that through building school mental health programs, for example, because there's a lot less stigma about getting help and getting mental health messages that are accurate um, and trustworthy when you're doing that in a building that is full of adults you already have relationships with, Mm -hmm. full of adults that you already are already kind of looking at child development through a broader lens, right? They can see uh, that kids spend almost, you know, all their waking hours in a school building. And yeah. so how can we equip the people there not to all be therapists, right, because educators have a l- enough on their plates, but how can we help make that be uh, one open door, one place where families can go that they may have some more trust yeah. in the people there and so and so might their children. So in March of 2022, um, Governor Pritzker launched the Children's Behavioral Health Transformation Initiative, uh, this was in response to the teen mental health crisis. And the, the goals of the, the so-called blueprint is uh, making sure that there are enough services that can be easily accessible, intervening earlier, transparency in how services are, are, are delivered, and creating responsive systems that can adapt to the needs of teens. That's a mouthful, right? But how do you do that? What needs to happen to make that possible? Like, how do you intervene earlier? How can you make resources more accessible? You're nodding, Dr. Raviv, I'll start with you. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Dana uh, Weiner, who's been working on that um, initiative with the governor, I think, um, talked to a lot of people, including caregivers and people who are using mental health services, because we see that at Lurie all the time, right? We have some young people who are uh, kept at Lurie 
beyond medical necessity because there's no place for them to go if they need specialized residential treatment services, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and those issues are even worse in rural areas of our of our state. And so one of the things that um, I'm in particularly excited about is in terms of intervening earlier in my area of school mental health yeah. is this idea of starting to look at universal mental health screening in schools, right? And so just the way you do a vision screening, right, that helped kids be identified as needing glasses mm-hmm. uh, or hearing aids, right, hearing screening much earlier, just like the pediatricians do a developmental screening, if we can identify those mental health concerns earlier, then we may prevent kids from getting to the point where they're crossing the threshold of well, Lurie Children's. that would Children's. be a game changer. Right. I mean, most of the kids who get services at Lurie Children's have come through at a price, crisis point, often through our emergency department. Mm-hmm. And those issues have done way more damage and are much harder to treat at that point than if we had identified those problems earlier and come in with a more proactive and supportive preventive approach. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts there? Oh, absolutely. So Dr. Dana Weiner, colleague of mine, uh, we worked together on a study that she um, uh, co- co-PI'd with me uh, as an investigator, I mean. So yeah, I totally agree. Universal, this is what the blueprint talks about. Yeah. Um, the Illinois Children's, you mentioned it, transformation, a mental health transformation blueprint. Um, lays out really nice plans of um, talking about universal screenings happening in schools and in medical centers, like in pediatricians' offices, whether mm-hmm. if it's in a community or places like Lurie or University of Chicago. So, yeah, University of Chicago, my focus is like our, our mental health teams are in um, pediatrician spaces, mm-hmm. right? Um, we work in collaborative care to connect kids to resources. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, kids are coming in for routine care, but then we're able to help families understand about there's no health without mental health and how do we help address the whole kid rather than just looking at the medical aspect. What does the transparency piece of this mean? It says, you know, transparency in how services are delivered. Yeah, so I think what they mean by that is um, what are the services that kids are going to get? What are the families that kids are going to get? How do we link people to services and having information being very clear? There's a lot of turnover rates, um, and, and communities where mental health can be provided. Um, and a lot of families don't know where to go and they don't know what they're really receiving. And so I think making that very clear on the end as a consumers, as families, as consumers, and then we have providers being very clear and explicit about the services that are being provided. Mm. So the families don't show up confused about what is this that I'm doing and what am I supposed to be getting? Um, that it's just very, very clear. Just got time for one more quick question, uh, and I'd love for you both to chime in here because, I mean, it can be hard to know where to go to start this journey, right? So if you're looking for resources for a teen, what suggestions do you have for parents listening right now as, as to where to go for help? You first, Dr. Denise Zulu. So 988 is the crisis text line. Correct. I think that's a really great piece. A lot of our teens... Um, Sometimes come to the parents with the crises, or sometimes families might miss the red flags. Um, NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Health, I think is a great resource as well. Um, and honestly, I think th- th- this is where the blueprint is trying to produce like a streamlined access information because it's so piecemeal that even me as a provider is having yeah. a hard time. I'm going to give you like 10 different places, but really we need a centralized place. And this is what this blueprint is going to focus on. Yeah. But NAMI and 988 are really great places um, to start with in terms of yeah. resources, well, even if it's not a crisis, but to at least get information. Anything to add, Dr. Raviv? Well, I would just say that uh, parents should always 
start with their pediatrician or their school mental health provider as additional resources to have that conversation. Um, we are also at Lurie trying to um, train up pediatricians, right, to be that point of entry um, to be able to help their uh, families navigate the, the resources. And then the school counselor, social worker, or school psychologist also have their finger on the pulse of uh, areas, uh, resources in the area to start with for mental health. That is uh, Dr. Sonia Denizulu and Dr. Tali Raviv. Thank you both so much for joining us. Now, as we just heard, there are numerous factors contributing to our teen mental health crisis, but many experts believe that a major source is social media. One of those experts is Devorah Heitner. She's the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World, in a forthcoming book called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Devorah, social media use among young people is nearly universal at this point. Up to 95% of teens and 40% of children between 8 and 12 years old are on Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok and other online platforms. So why is something so common seen overall as a problem? I think adults are nervous about something that they didn't grow up with and understand. And there are ways that social media and gaming and other ways kids are connecting online can maybe exacerbate some of the things that are already happening. But no one has actually shown that social media itself is a root cause of mental health issues. And if you read those reports carefully, they they all are really careful to say that there is some correlation in the increase in mental health challenges that we're seeing with teens. Uh, But there's also a lot of other things going on. The last three years have been tremendously disruptive Mm -hmm. in the lives of anyone who was in school before the pandemic and and throughout or, you know, kids delayed schools starting. Kids here in Chicago missed up to, you know, 18 months of in-person school. That is not a small factor in development and access to mental health care services. There's so much talk about screen time, screen time, screen time. Yes. But. We don't know that that's the cause, but we do, we do know that that screens can be a place where kids are sharing about their mental health, where kids are reaching out for help. And sometimes that also makes us nervous because it violates taboos and some of the stigmas that both of the researchers who were on earlier were talking about, those stigmas about mental health. When kids get, get on TikTok and share about a diagnosis or get on Instagram and share their stories or share on Discord or YouTube, mm-hmm. it makes us very nervous. But I think it's actually incredible information that we as adults have now that kids are sharing so openly in some cases about their mental health. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that social media affects our youth both positively and negatively. A hundred percent. So give us an overview, both sides of the argument here. So social media can be a place where kids have some negative interactions, where kids can potentially be bullied or harassed. A lot of the kids I talked to, particularly kids who identify as girls, were talking to me about pretty extreme levels of sexual harassment from a very young age, you know, really gross things coming into their direct messages as soon as they got social accounts. And this could be at age 11 or 12. So that's obviously really concerning to me, both as a researcher and as a parent. And... There are kids connecting with one another, finding affinity, LGBTQ plus teens, kids in other communities, Mm -hmm. uh, finding each other, you know, like in the neurodiverse community, for example, connecting, finding support, finding resources. So I think there are both definitely positives and negatives. And it's really important to look at your own kids for parents who may be listening or or educators. It's important to talk to the kids in front of you and really Ask them what they think. You know, what? how do they feel after they scroll their feed for a few minutes? Who are they following? Mm-hmm. 
do they have a sense of how the algorithm works? Because the algorithm can send you really positive, uplifting things. Mm -hmm. They can send you your own friends, which could be really supportive. Or they can send you information about self-harm and other and, and information that may encourage eating disorders. And obviously... Those are the things that as adults, as educators, as mentors, mm -hmm. we don't want kids to be seeing. This is exactly what uh, the U.S. Surgeon General talks about in his latest advisory on, on social media. He's raising the alarm about uh, youth mental health and, and social media being a driving force behind it. And so to your point, uh, it talks about, uh, you know, when asked about the impact of social media on their body image, th these are, you know, young people surveyed, 46% of them, uh, between 13 and 17, they said that social media makes them feel worse. That's, that's a lot. It's a place where we can share and compare. And teenagers are already pretty wired to share and compare themselves. And, you know, even before social media, most kids could have made a map of who the popular kids and the less popular kids in their high school or middle school were. That That's not new. But the idea that you now are walking around with this public number of followers and you can you can count how many likes you have on a post, that's going to affect kids. And and body image, I mean, when, when I was a kid, I could look at a magazine and see an airbrush model. And if I had been prone to this, I could have compared myself to that model. But now I can also compare myself right next to, like, like my pictures yes. that I would post are right next to both, you know, airbrush models and influencers and, then, and my friends. And you can make yourself that airbrush model with all the filters. I can. And then once the filters go away, then you're like, oh, right, that's what I actually look like. And then for some, that's a, a negative feeling. We have to really teach kids about how that works and how problematic and pernicious and dangerous it is. But I also think we have to recognize that a ton of kids are on social media predominantly for messaging, predominantly for other kinds of contacts. In other words, it's not that you get a kid on, say, Instagram or they start following TikTok and they're immediately going to be in danger in yeah. their body image. It really depends what pre-existing vulnerabilities there are and who they follow. So the more we can arm kids with good information about the algorithm and how social media works, the better off they will be in terms of their resilience. Mm -hmm. Even if they do see some negative messages, they can interpret those better if they've had good mentorship and education around yeah. social media. So the U.S. Surgeon General continues in his advisory to say, you know, this is this should be what he calls a, a multifaceted effort. That, that's the way forward here, right? The burden should not fall solely on the child or the parents. Uh, so he says it needs to be a, an approach that involves policymakers, um, tech companies, researchers, and the families working all together. Do you agree? I do. I think the design features really do need to be looked at because they get us where they're where the most human. It's not just kids. I mean, I post and I want likes. I want to be retweeted and shared, right? We all want to be seen and heard and understood and regarded. Accepted. And, and social media gets us there. And so or like like it, it gets us in that place of wanting to be wanting those things. And so we don't want to look at our kids like, you're dupes. What's wrong with you? Why do you post so much? Why do you want likes? It's like, of course you want those things. Mm -hmm. And so we need to look at the design. And I think the companies need to step up and take more responsibility also for taking down harassing accounts, really intervening more quickly if someone's being impersonated in mm -hmm. these spaces. And unfortunately, the profit motive doesn't go very well with taking those kinds of things down because the kind of staff it would take to really look at everything that they're publishing and supporting on their platforms is not existent. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking about the role that social media plays in an ongoing teen mental health crisis. And with us is Devorah Heitner, who's author of ScreenWise and an upcoming book called Growing Up in Public. Both of your books focus on this very topic. Why? Why was this something that you wanted to look into? Well, I've always been interested in these things, and I used to study kids' media and teach it at the college level. And I had 18 to 20-year-old students 
interviewing third graders about their media ecology, and I got really interested. And then I became a parent in 2009, right around the time that social media was exploding among my peers. And all my friends were asking these questions like, should we share our kids' pictures on then Facebook was very Mm -hmm. popular. And those questions are still lively. And when I go out to schools and I ask kids, have your parents ever shared a photo of you without permission and caused embarrassment and consternation? And they all say yes. I mean, it's like a universal that kids feel like their their parents are. So, I mean, in some ways, I think about the 80s, you know, drug commercial, which some folks may remember. Um, you know, I learned it from you, mom, right? The idea of like, why yeah. are you sharing so much? Well, a lot of these kids are learning to share from their parents who may be sharing without great boundaries mm. and without respect for consent and privacy. So a huge thing we can do is just ask our kids permission before we share about them. And that was something that I started to think about, you know, early on in social media. But I had my own revisions when my kid got to be old enough to tell me stop sharing. Yeah. Right. So. We can't put the blame solely on social media, as you said earlier in the conversation, Devorah. But trying to get teens off of social media altogether, that's probably not the answer either. I don't think so. I think we need to look at what kids are doing on social media and ask them questions about how they feel. We need to listen and read what kids are saying and listen to their videos. Kids have a lot to say, and there are a lot of young activists, for example, using social media in a really positive way, including, you know, young people here in Chicago who are doing amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to listen to those folks and listen to what they're saying about mental health. But we also need to make sure we're providing places for teenagers to hang out that are safe, where they're not over-policed, where they don't need money to be there. And so positive spaces. And I know here in Chicago, like libraries can be incredibly positive spaces Mm -hmm. for young people. And there's a lot of really great stuff happening there. Uh, these are these are good examples, right? School-based health clinics are important in terms of mental health services. But kids should also be safe to hang out at the park. They should be safe to walk around stores without getting followed out, right? And so when we look at why are kids choosing to spend all their time online, how much public space is is inviting and available to kids? You know, are they safe going to the beach with their friends? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. We need to do more to claim public spaces for teenagers. We need to do more to to have really good on-ramps and internships and places where kids can get in-person work experience that's positive, um, you know, not yeah. just minimum wage jobs where they may not be treated very well. I think it's really important to find those spaces for kids to give them places to connect in person. Such great points. You're working on this new book, as I mentioned. It's called Growing Up in Public. It focuses on how teens themselves view their relationships with social media. Anything surprising come from your conversations as you were doing research for this book? My biggest surprise was the ways kids are claiming their identities in these spaces around things like neurodiversity, around queerness, um, and talking about their experiences, including things like experiencing racist aggressions, experiencing sexual assault and harassment, and coming forward with it in these social spaces. And I think it makes adults real nervous when that happens, but those are great places to be listening to kids. Such a fearless, seemingly fearless generation. In some is. important ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as parents, what do you think we should keep in mind when we try to help our kids navigate social media and, and just the internet at large? <laughs> well, I love what the researchers who spoke earlier said about sleep. I do think if you have a hill to die on with your kids, if you can unplug them at night, make sure, you know, for younger kids, just taking away the devices at night, I think is a good way to go. I don't think we need to get too fancy with it. Just making sure that they know to unplug and take a break. And also to keep the conversation going about how, you know, how exclusion can happen, how to feel better if you see something where you were left out, how to check on information you're getting online to make sure you're not absorbing misinformation. 
and how to walk away from the ways that social media can kind of push us into outrage mm -hmm. and recognize like, wow, if I'm feeling outrage, what I want to do is find the other people who have affinity for what I believe and work with them to make change, whether that's at my school, in my neighborhood, in my home um, or in the world versus, say, like making a negative comment on that hateful person's YouTube, which is not going to fix anything. Mm -hmm. And it's actually they might even be making money if you're giving them your eyeballs. That's the like perverse problem with hate watching stuff. So we need to be yeah. really careful about not sort of fanning the flames of what we don't like in the world and, and give the energy, you know, where it can be used positively. That is such great advice. You know, we have been talking, Devorah, about how teens use social media, but tell us more about how adults can just model a healthy relationship with social media. You said before, they're learning from us. They're learning from Absolutely. us. And what advice do you give the adults? It's great to talk about ways where times where we've felt left out, where maybe if I'm scrolling and I'm feeling like, oh, everyone's on vacation, but I'm here at work. And it's just hard to look at or, you know, watching other people's numbers can make me feel anxious, whether that's as an author or just as an individual on social media. So talking to kids about not taking that stuff too seriously, recognizing everyone's always posting about living their best life. And that's a bit of a performance. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind myself, like, people don't post when they're unloading the dishwasher. That's why Be Real hasn't been that popular. Because <laughs> no one actually wants to see you doing yeah. the boring stuff, you know, right. feeding your cat. They want to see you on top of the mountain. But then it looks like everybody's life is always on top of the mountain. So just having that perspective, putting it away, and, and for sure not sharing our kids without their consent and permission and talking with them about those boundaries about, because then they'll ask, they'll remember to ask their friends for permission. If we model that, yes. we don't share folks' stories or their image without their consent, they know that that's the deal. And when they get to be the age to share, which is younger every day, <laughs> they're going to be like, oh, is it cool if I put this on my channel or whatever, which we want Which them is to what do. we want. Yeah. Devorah Heitner is author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. She's got a new book called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. It's coming out in September. Thank you again, Devorah. Thank you. All right, let's turn now to local efforts and service providers working to address the problem by showing young people what resources are out there and supporting them through peer-led programs. With us is Sam Savin, a youth clinical social worker with JCC Chicago. That's a nonprofit organization serving Jewish communities across the Chicagoland area. And Mitchell Sandy, a licensed clinical psychologist and the vice president of clinical operations and youth services at Thresholds which provides resources to people across Illinois living with severe mental health illnesses and substance use disorders. Now, what do you both see Chicago teens struggle with the most? You first, Sam. Sure. Um, I think, you know, that there are so many different factors and really depending on the community that you're coming from, it can be a really big difference. Um, I think that, you know, community violence as a whole is something that a lot of teens are really struggling with to feel safe. Um, and I think, you know, academic pressures now more than ever have really increased. And you have teens that are having three, four, five AP classes and early morning class and afternoon class and varsity sports and all of these things mm -hmm. and pressure to feel like they uh, are going to be able to compete to get into certain universities and that pressure. And that, you know, it kind of speaks to what, you know, you guys were talking about before with sleep. They are not getting enough sleep at all. It's a running theme today is yeah. our teens need more sleep. It, yeah, it's a big one. So I think all of those things. And then again, the social media aspect of seeing all of this online, comparing yourself 
to your friends and seeing them post things where they're celebrating certain things or being at a party that you weren't invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are just so many more things. And I think also the the one thing that, you know, we kind of haven't touched on is the, 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 the thought that these are young adults in a way and that they are ready to handle all of these situations when, like was talked about before, their brains are still developing and they are managing all of these things when our, you know, our brain doesn't fully develop Mm -hmm. all of those things until mid 20, mid to late 20s. So that's a big factor. Just recently, she looked at me and I think I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot to pay X, Y, Z bill. And she said, oh, you know what? I never want to be an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Adulting is hard. She said, said, I never want to be an adult. And I was like, well, girl, you've got just a few more years. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, But Mitchell, let's let's hear from you. What what are kids struggling with the most? I think in some sense there is like a a parity issue that we're struggling with as well, being able to have services that are the same across the city of Chicago, no matter where you live. If you're in the north side, you have a variety of providers you can pull from to be able to get resources when you need that as a young person or as a young adult. Whereas in some other communities, it can be a little bit more of a struggle being able to find access to those services. So when you do kind of come forward and needing some support in that area, it can be a bit of a struggle being able to find access to those things in your community where it's convenient for you to be able to seek out and receive those services. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sam, JCC Chicago has got a, a teen mental health committee. Yes. What are you doing with the, with the kids, and how have you been able to reach them yeah, through this group? Yeah, so this was actually the first year that I started this, and I got um, eight teens that were really excited, um, and it was it, it's been an amazing experience. So our the main initiative that we really wanted to focus on was creating a teen created mental health webpage with information for teens created by teens. Mm. So on there, there are blogs by our teens on our mental health committee about their own struggles. There are recommendations for wellness apps that they really like. Um, There are mental health tips on there for how to, you know, mental health is health. We all have it. Um, And so how to, you know, promote and have good healthy habits. And one thing that they really wanted on there, which I thought was phenomenal, was they didn't just want what helps, you know, your mental health. Okay, taking a walk, getting outside, those things. They wanted to know why that is important. So mm. on there also is why. A little bit of the science behind, oh, that, you know, it releases serotonin and it makes me feel better. That's and they why. they came up with that themselves. And they wanted, yeah, they felt it was really important. They're like, when, you know, adults are always telling me these things and I want to know why it's important to do that. So, you so know, true. it's a great, great resource. So good. And, and we have resources on there, crisis support. You know, a lot of the resources that you guys mentioned earlier, we have listed on there. So people can look at that and link to those web pages. And uh, Thresholds, Mitchell, it, it's got a number of different resources and services for folks uh, experiencing these uh, similar crises. Your group's got uh, specifically a peer-led crisis respite center called The Living Room. Uh, and a, a program that offers youth with something called uh, Supported Employment and Education. Tell us more about the, the different programs. Yeah, the Living Room is available, and you can access it through our agency website, thresholds.org, to be able to learn more about the program. Mm-hmm. It's designed for individuals that are experiencing a mental health crisis that may not need to go to the ER and may not need to meet the threshold of going into a psychiatric hospitalization, but are not just okay staying at home. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of peer-led work that's done within that program, people that are actually experiencing and have experienced mental illness in their lives, too, are there to be able to support these members as they come in and need to be able to get support and connection to services thereafter. 
Um, vocation is definitely vocation education and connecting people with jobs and employment has always been a core focus, you know, with the work that we do with young people right. uh, as they begin to start to transition into young adulthood. And the supported employment programs uh, are there to be able to help support the young person as they start their job, have ah. the connection, but also being able to help them navigate some of the challenges they have like a with, their, a bridge. with their employers and things right. like that. And right. many of our young people, especially in the programs that I work and that have a pretty significant trauma history, sometimes don't take criticism very well. They have a hard time being able to understand that maybe the feedback you're giving me as my supervisor, you're not making a comment about me as a person. And so then they have a hard time being able to then respond appropriate in those situations. So like some of our programs are catered to be able to help these individuals through those challenges before they start getting into an education. Tell us more about setting. that. Yeah, I, I want to hear more specific examples of how you've seen thresholds programs really help these teens. Definitely, definitely. Um, many of the people that I work with are survivors of both childhood trauma, but also have mental illness on top of it as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's been in my history working in agencies such as Thresholds for many years. And one of the ways we can make a really good improvement in the programs we provide is that we've always had youth-led focused programming. Um, so we actually run a youth advisory board within our agency uh, that is uh, peer-led within youth across the program. They provide support and recommendations to the agency leadership on how we can tailor and change programming. Uh, and as a result of doing that, there has this transparency between adults and transparency between the systems mm-hmm. and working with young people, whereas many times a lot of the young people that come into these programs have had the system, if you will, quote unquote, kind of having to make every decision for them. We're trying to change that script a little bit so they can kind of take control of the decisions that are being made in their lives, as they, especially as they transition into adulthood. Yeah. What about you, Sam? Direct impact that you're seeing on the teens from these JCC programs? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we've really seen is that the teens really appreciate having a voice. Um, and that, I think, is one of the, one of the biggest factors. Um, and, and, you know, I think that they really feel all really empowered. So I think beyond even just, you know, so what are some of the resources, you know, in terms of therapeutic support, but I think finding a way to have some kind of involvement in the answer is hugely impactful for teens to feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves um, and to recognize that they have commonalities with other teens that are struggling with certain things. And so joining groups like this, being on advisory boards, being on mental health committees, and being able to use some of your own personal experience to help others is, is I think, a phenomenal way, and that is therapeutic in and of itself yeah. a lot of times. You know what, I'm curious what you say or, or what you think uh, or how you respond, rather, to folks who think that this generation of young people, they just need to toughen up. Mm-hmm. They're too sensitive. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> they get that a lot. And, and again, that's some of the stigma, right, of mental health and, you know, the older generation feeling like, oh, I went through all of these things and look at me. I didn't complain about it. I didn't have to talk with anybody. I didn't need a mental health day and all of those things. So I think in a lot of ways we've moved the needle in terms of talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a lot of ways also it's a little bit of a fluff. And not really getting at, but there are true needs and there are true struggles that really do need to be addressed. And I think one of the things also to to notice is 
is that in terms of accessing resources, a lot of times that is done when you are already in a crisis. Right. And that's the biggest thing is that just because you are, you know, maybe functioning by certain people's definition, I'm getting out of bed, I'm turning in my homework assignments. But if you know that, you know, there is some persistent thing that I do not feel well in, in you know, in, in my life. And you, that is the point. We have to get to need. it before exactly. it gets to crisis mode. Right. Exactly. Mitchell, why are, keeping all of this in mind, why are community-based services so important when it comes to addressing crises like these? When we talk about um, recovering from mental illness and being able to manage it on an ongoing basis, we're also kind of looking at like their resiliency and building up their resiliency portfolio. And a lot of that kind of looks at both internal resources that we have, but we're also looking at what are some of the external things that we can kind of build up in that young person's life from connection with family, but connection to community and school is equally as important. Mm -hmm. Having a place where they feel they can be accepted and supported is critical. And being so, able so it's about making an impact on an individual level? Absolutely. Would you say that? Absolutely. And you're being able to really surround that young person with resources, both things they can do at home within their family, but also who are the people in the community that are most important to for them as well, whether it's a coach a uh, teacher at school, whatever it might be, you're drawing upon them and being able to bring them in and surround the young person when they are struggling, Yeah. as opposed to having them kind of go to another community and receive services or whatever that might be, or being completely displaced. Uh, for example, for some of you people that go to residential programs, they have to go sometimes all the other end of the state to be able to receive those services, yeah. as opposed to back to the communities where they actually are going to live once they discharge from those programs. Sam, I want you to talk to teens listening right now. Ah. What would you say? What, what, what do you want to tell them? What should they know? Uh, that, I mean, that's a great question. I think that you are not alone. I mean, that is the biggest thing. I think you are not alone. And there are people in your world that want to help and support you in some kind of way. Um, and whether that's a, a friend, a teacher, there is, you know, ways that you as a teen can access support and resources. Um, even, you know, on our website, jccchicago.org slash teenmh, you can also link to something called Ask an Expert, which is a completely anonymous way to ask me a mental health-related question. Mm. Um, so that is something that if you feel like you're not comfortable reaching out to somebody, that's a completely anonymous way that you can ask and reach for, for out for some help. Um, and also, I think, you know, a lot of times they don't want to talk with their parents. Mm -hmm. And a lot of teens don't know that there's actually a law that you can see somebody up to eight times without parental consent. So and there are places that will help you facilitate that process. Yeah. And again, on the on our website, there are there's all of that information on there. So, you know, you can head to that and get a That's lot great. of this information. And teens don't like labels either. So mm -hmm. even just that backslash teen MH, teen MH not yep. actually spelling out mental health. Right. right. That's yeah. a very subtle but effective right. uh, thing that you've yeah. done there. Uh, before we go, where can folks go to learn more about your group? You first, Mitchell. Uh, thresholds.org would definitely be a place you can turn to to be able to learn more about our program as well. So, mm -hmm. And then, like I mentioned, jccchicago.org slash teenmh. And then also uh, you can follow us on our Instagram at jcc.chicagoteens. And we do a lot of posting on there as well in terms of mental health support um, and things that we have going on. I'll give you the last word, Mitchell. A word to teens listening. I like what you said about them not feeling they're, they don't need to feel alone. And I think I could echo that wholeheartedly. And there's definitely dedicated adults that do care and want to listen and want to change the systems that you're a part of and want to be able to make it more youth-friendly, inviting, and more focused on 
your needs mm -hmm. where you want it to go. There are folks and, who want to help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mitchell Sandy is a licensed clinical psychologist and the vice president of clinical operations and youth services at Thresholds. And Sam Savin is a youth clinical social worker with JCC Chicago. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Stephanie Kim. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.